If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker. I am your host, Alex Andreu. On this week's show, people are bored with COVID. Unfortunately, COVID is still very much interested in people. Can we learn to live with a virus by ignoring it? Toppling slave traders' statues, a sign of progress or a slide into lawlessness? And veganuary, dry January, exercise, diet and New Year's resolutions. Should we be giving up stuff during the most depressing month of the year? All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. First up, we have Evening Standard columnist and Times Radio host Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello, hello, and a belated Happy New Year to you all. And to you. Aisha, after stories that Jeremy Corbyn was considering standing as an independent in Islington North, there's a telegraph scoop that he's being urged, I know not by whom, to start his own party. What do you make of the story? I just hope it's true. I just really, I mean... <laughs> Just do it. Like, just go ahead and, and, and do it. Because I just feel that Jeremy Corbyn knows that he's not going to get back into the Labour Party and all his um, supporters just to, con- you know, continue to, to sort of abuse people. And, 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 you know, if that's what he wants to do, he should go and do it. We just want everyone to be happy. Might it be smart by Starmer to bury the hatchet. I mean, if Labour wants some semblance of unity before the next election, surely it makes sense to show willing. I completely disagree with that. If 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 Keir Starmer made any efforts to reconcile with Jeremy Corbyn, it would make his already difficult task of trying to win the next general election even harder. You know, he's actually doing not badly at the moment. I think mainly because the Tories are doing so badly, but his personal ratings have gone up. Um, people who voted Liberal Democrats, who voted for the Green Party, even people who voted for the Conservatives need to look at uh, Keir Starmer and think, you know, there's a chance I might want to vote for him. And the one thing we're absolutely clear about from the last general election in 2019 is that people were absolutely turned off Jeremy Corbyn in their droves um, and they went to other parties as a result of that. So I think the people that Keir Starmer should be reaching out to are the Liberal Democrats, are the Greens, and actually even encouraging SNP supporters to have a look at the Labour Party again. He will do nothing but harm his chances 
if he tries to cozy up to Jeremy Corbyn now. Also returning to the bunker, a huge welcome to comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello. Hello, Ahir. Happy New Year. Um, Michael Gove was uh, stuck in a BBC lift on his way to an interview. Is this the most elegant cosmic metaphor yet for the government's levelling up agenda? (laughs) I think that uh, when I saw this, I realised that basically I just watched far too many action films because (laughs) I was just like, well, uh, you get stuck in the lift and then you just like poke the thing that's at the top and clamber out of that and shimmy up while hoping to avoid the explosion that's inevitably going to occur uh, sooner rather than later. So all, all I was doing was sort of to see imagining... Do that. <laughs> yeah, I was just imagining him as John McClane and it was very exciting. <laughs> Which Conservative minister would you most like to be trapped in a lift with? I think that I would like to be trapped in a lift with uh, Rishi Sunak so that I could just be like, why? Why though? <laughs> <laughs> Would your answer be different if this were a lift with no CCTV cameras? <laughs> uh, if there's no CCTV cameras, then hell, Hancock. Jesus Christ, we've seen how we've seen how extraordinary he is with cameras. It'd be hands where we can see them, Matty. Hands where we can see them. Our special guest today, although I'm sure he's already regretting it, is the one and only Roy Lilly, health commentator, writer, broadcaster, and font of all knowledge on NHS-related matters. Welcome back to the show, Roy. Thank you. It's a great pleasure, and Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year to you too. Roy, figures released by NHS England last week show that 27,000 medical staff left the organisation in the third quarter of last year alone, the highest number on record and roughly 2% of the entire workforce. Is burnout a vastly underestimated long-term risk for the health service? Great question. Yes, I think it is. And also to add to the gloom, 14,000 nurses left as well. So Uh, is that on top of the... Yes, that's on on top of the 27,000. So, you know, we're running up the down escalator. You know, we all know, don't we? When we went into COVID, the the thing about COVID is it's kind of cloaked everything that happened before it. It's kind of wiped Mm. our memory of, of things. We went into COVID with ambulances queuing up outside A&E with waiting lists at about 4 million and and with 40,000 nurse vacancies. That was before COVID. Now, because we come into COVID, everything that's happened before gets forgotten. And now we start to look at the numbers again and we think, oh, we've lost more nurses. And here's the thing. The NHS has no workforce plan. It has no idea how it's going to be able to resolve this. And you're going to say, well, why has it got no workforce plan? It's an obvious thing to do. It's because the NHS doesn't write its own workforce plan. It's a consultee, but it's written by the Department of Health, agreed by the Treasury and signed Mm. off by number 10. No workforce plan. So, you know, who knows? Roy, the chair of the National Care Association has been quite explicit in saying that Brexit and the Home Office's immigration policy has made their shortages much, much worse. Is there a similar effect with NHS staff, do you think? Sure. We lost a lot of nurses um, uh, when Brexit came along and there was some uncertainty about whether or not people could stay. We lost a lot of people and we lost a lot of good people. I mean, we think in terms of um, you know European nurses, for example, coming over here, these might be uh, like youngsters who decide they're going to spend a bit of time in London or travel around. Well, there's some of that. But a lot of people that came to... 
to here was because of our training and because a lot of the hospitals are attached to universities and it's a big opportunity for people and their careers. So we lost not only nurses, we lost medics as well. And we lost, mm. you know, very good medics who, who took one look at this and said, look, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay here. I'm married. I'm renting a house. I've got two kids that are in a local school. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Let's go home. And they went. Mm. And so it's made a big dent. Absolutely. And we can't get them back. Portuguese nurses, I I went, I interviewed some Portuguese nurses in Portugal who left the NHS, you know, and they all were very, very sorry to leave, but they just said, it's the uncertainty. We, you know, mm. we don't, we don't want to get thrown out. The NHS strain around the Omicron variant is proving to be pretty omega. On Friday, the military were being sent to hospitals in London to help. The Red Cross has been putting together pop-up services to help with discharging patients. And yet, despite a truly frightening number of Omicron cases, hospitalizations seem to be leveling off in some areas, even dropping in London. And intensive care beds taken up by COVID patients are nowhere near the peak of previous waves. Roy Lilly first. Why does the NHS appear to be struggling so much this time when it is dealing with an ostensibly lighter COVID load? I think there's two reasons. Uh, One is, although uh, the viral load with Omega is is uh, Omicron, Omicron <laughs> is, is a derivative of Omega, isn't it? Omicron, um, the, the viral load is less, the spread is a lot quicker. So you deal, if you, if you take a cohort of people, a percentage of them will not do very well and they will need hospitalization. So the bigger the number of people that have that are infected, a small number of a big number is still a lot of people. Yeah. It's also true, of course, that they don't need um, uh, quite so much help. I mean, this is really the, the, the COVID is a, a respiratory problem and people need help with breathing. We got a lot better at that. Now we don't have to intubate people in the way that we did. That means shoving a tube down their throat. Yeah. Uh, it means we can look after them on a medical ward with what's called a PAP system, which is like the, the spaceman's helmet thing to help them. So, and they're in hospital for less time. Average length of stay for the first wave was about 12 days. Now it's down to about five. So that does help. But the trouble is there's a lot more of them. And the mm. other part that we've got a problem with is is the fact that we've got so many staff off. There are more staff, NHS staff sick at the moment than there are soldiers in the British Army. So, you know, that's the problem. Uh, and wow, that's, that's quite stark. Yes. And that's comprised of two things. One staff that are off sick with uh, the Omicron variant and the staff that are sheltering, uh, that are are, um, um, hibernating Mm. (laughs) because they've they've become into a contact with someone who uh, has – uh, had the uh, has the virus now yeah. uh, originally of course they had to stay at home and off work for seven uh, for 10 days that was reduced to seven days which helped it meant people could get back quicker now of course the conversation is about whether or not people can come back in five days my own view is that, that i think the viral load at the end of five days is still problematic and they shouldn't but you know the we're kind of desperate for people. It looks like teachers are going to come back at five days. Mm. I don't know what's going to happen. Most people I talk to in the NHS, they say, you know what, this is not a great idea. But it's under huge pressure from staffing. And of course, you know, we've got a shortage of staff anyway. 
Some commentators have suggested that it is the number of incidental cases that has caught everyone by surprise. People who come into hospital for reasons other than COVID, but then test positive and must be treated accordingly. Is there something to this? And what can be done to relieve it practically? Yes, uh, there is something in it, and it's a problem. So, I mean, let's let's take, I don't know, somebody uh, was taking down their Christmas tree on a stepladder, fell off and broke their leg and gets carted off to hospital. Anybody who goes into hospital has to be tested for COVID unless they come in as a COVID patient. Mm. So that means that whoever it is has their leg broken, if they need surgery or what have you, they have to be then treated as a COVID patient. So the surgery has to be done under COVID conditions by staff who are in the COVID part of the hospital. They then put it get put in a COVID surgical ward, not an ordinary surgical ward, where because of um, infection control requirements, there aren't as many beds. Because of infection control requirements, nurses and doctors can't work in the COVID bit and then in the other bit. It means that catering has to be done separately. It means estates and repairs and running repairs and cleaning and everything has to be done separately. So even though they come in and they don't present with COVID, you know, as a COVID patient, but they, they get caught incidentally as being a COVID patient, it still gives the NHS a problem and mm. it clogs the system up. And that's why we've got a, we, we've got a problem. This, the conversation is about, you know, well, we've got to save the NHS. It's not about that at all. It, and it's not really about COVID. It, you know, the NHS is very good at dealing with COVID now. It's got it cracked really the problem that, that we've got is that covid silts up the whole system and nothing else can be done yeah. and that's why we're now getting huge waiting lists and that's why we're getting huge problems with people getting through the system i mean you put out a very influential newsletter called nhs managers and and in it you often talk of the three l's legacy, leadership, and lunacy. Can I just ask you to briefly outline each, <laughs> especially focusing on lunacy? <laughs> yes, well, okay, right. This is where we have the bunkers lawyers uh, standing by. Uh, well, le- le- legacy, it's simple. We've had 10 years of post-banking crisis, really. The, the NH- in the 10 years after the banking crisis, um, uh, the NHS had about uh, had 10 years of flatline funding to, yeah. you know, to cut to the quick. It normally would expect an uplift each year of about 4%, 3.84%, something like that. And the NHS could kind of manage with that. But 10 years of flatline f- uh, funding has impacted on everything. We've got fewer beds, we've got fewer staff, we've got fewer people in training. And so we came out of that 10 years with fewer beds per head um, of population than any other EU system and most of the OECD systems and fewer staff. So that's the leg Legacy that the NHS went into the uh, into the uh, the crisis with it went in unprepared, unrehearsed, and under resourced, and it's now you know it's under the cosh. Leadership, well, as, as the COVID months have sort of dragged on, the economic damage has been horrible. Decisions have been slow. We've had a dithering prime minister, and he's now created a credibility vacuum in the leadership that's divided the Tory party, mm. and that's fed into lunacy, where a small group led by Brexit hard man Steve Baker, who incidentally was instrumental in bringing down Theresa May, has engineered a situation where unless Baker agrees, Bojo can't do anything. So mm. now the NHS is in free fall and the pubs are free to stay open. But of course, 
what's happened is that the public are saying, well, you know, I'm not going to go out and I'm not going to go shopping. I'm not going to go on a train because they've used their common sense. So now all the businesses that we put billions into supporting with furlough and all the other VAT relief and eat out to help out and all that, all the billions we put into that, they're all now struggling because the public have decided not to go out. And I don't think anything Bojo says will get them to go out mm. because they're, they're not stupid. They can see what's happening and they're just not going to do it. Yes, there, there seems to be a segment of people that anything he says will not make them go out and another segment where anything he says will not make them not go out. So um, the, the worst of both worlds there. Aisha, the governments of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have taken slightly diverging paths against, against Omicron. Has one done markedly better than others? And will any differences in outcomes inevitably become political footballs, do you think? Well, I think what's been really interesting about this pandemic is that it it doesn't feel like it's been a a UK-wide approach. It has made each of the separate nation countries within the United Kingdom feel very different. And it has allowed the leaders of each country to assert themselves um, in, a, in a very, very different way. I mean, in Scotland, of course, that definitely fuels a wider political argument about separation um, mm-hmm. and, and independence. And it you know, even causes problems for the Labour Party, for example, because you have Mark Drakeford um, taking a very, very different approach from Keir Starmer. I mean, remember, Keir Starmer has pretty much supported Boris Johnson in most of the big decisions. And I interviewed Keir Starmer just before Christmas, and he said, look, I'm backing the the, the moves that, that Boris Johnson is putting in at the moment. We're not doing anything different, yet his counterpart in Wales, Mark Drakeford, is doing something very different. But we've even seen it exacerbate regional tensions as well. I mean, Another big figure in this pandemic was Andy Burnham. You know, Andy yeah, Burnham rose Manchester, up as, yeah. as exactly as the mayor of Manchester, as supported by the way by the chair of the 1922 committee. You know, who is also a, a Greater Manchester MP, and they said to Boris Johnson, "Hang on a minute, you can't put us in, you know, tier three and not give us business support." So what you are seeing is the pandemic is, I think accelerating a really important discussion about devolution of mm. power and of course that then feeds into this you know leveling up um agenda in terms of who's done better than than the others i think time will tell there's definitely a presentational issue i mean many people in scotland think nicola sturgeon has had a a good pandemic people think mark greatford ha- has had a good pandemic as well but if you actually look at the the raw figures the numbers are not that different i mean scotland has its fair share of horror stories particularly with what happened in care homes and and things like that but there's a feeling particularly um from nicola sturgeon and mark greatford there's been more consistency in the messaging. But in terms of the actual outcomes, I think they we may find that they're not that different. And, you know, I have plenty of fam- family and friends in Scotland who are not happy at what Nicola Sturgeon has done. You know, there are many businesses who feel that, this, that you know, Nicola Sturgeon has perhaps been too cautious um, in a way that, uh, you know, Boris Johnson hasn't done in, in Westminster. So I think time will tell. Um, but of course, it's going to be used for politics, particularly around the, the question of uh, the constitutional issue. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the counter argument, I guess, would be that from my outsider point of view, it seems that the 
the confidence and sure-footed way with which Drakeford and um, Sturgeon have handled the messaging around COVID is what has made a, a big, big difference in their perception. And that's what's been lacking in England, in my view. Um, Aisha, in the middle of this Omicron chaos, the NHS waiting lists have ballooned with almost 6 million people now waiting for surgery. This will take years to clear. If we reach a point COVID endemicity is manageable in the next couple of years, will voters be forgiving come the next election? Or will this actually damage the current administration's prospects? I think a lot of this will depend on what happens with the wider backdrop of the economy. As as the Bill Clinton strategist said, it's the economy stupid. And remember, the NHS under Conservative rule, when the Conservatives were in power for 18 years under Margaret Thatcher, and Roy will be the authority on this, the NHS had a terrible time um, back then, but people kept returning a, a Conservative government waiting lists were up people had to wait you know years for routine operations which were then cut um, by a subsequent Labour government but they still kept voting people in I think it very much depends on on what happens with this cost of living crisis if the cost of living crisis continues and that continues to collide with this huge decline in public services and the fact that you can't see your GP and it's very very difficult to get your routine appointments and you know operations which I know from people I know who are surgeons they often have they're having a case list at the moment where the original operation was not that serious by the time the patient gets to them it's going to be far more serious I think if that is all continuing along with the cost of living crisis then I think voters will take quite a dim view of the government but I do think for a lot of people the economy will probably be the number one issue, and then health and crime will come underneath that. Mm. Roy, very quickly, an Israeli study has found that a fourth dose of the vaccine boosts immunity uh, fivefold, I think, a week after the shot. And, and, And Israel is already embarking on a fourth round of jabs for over 60s key workers and the vulnerable. What's your what's the feeling in your waters? Do you think we will see this in Britain? Or are they more likely to settle into a seasonal programme? I think they'll try and tough it out and move into a seasonal program. Mm. Um, I, 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 I really don't see another jab coming on the horizon. I yeah. can't see it. Yep. Um, if I just slide in something about uh, something that Aisha just said, uh, the expectations uh, that the public might have about the, the NHS's ability to recover do worry the NHS. That's uh, There's a lot of talk going on about that. Access will improve. Waiting lists will continue going up. There's 8 million people. We, we operate on 8 million people a year, 10, 10 million actually, two emergencies and eight's routine. Add, add the eight to the five on the waiting list, plus another eight coming on the next year. And you can see we're running up the down escalator. So political expectations of the NHS feeding into public expectations really do worry. Sorry, the NHS. Uh, and can mm. I just add what can I just quickly add on one, one thing on that? And I think what's going to be very, very difficult is I think what the government will do and government ministers will pivot an argument out again to sort of blame the, the public on a lot of this. And it will be like, OK, we've come through this pandemic. It's your responsibility to look after your health now. I think we'll have a lot more of that messaging going on because of these huge waiting lists and because of the pressures. Mm. I hear sentiment 
is beginning to shift against the voluntarily unvaccinated, let's say. Um, French President Emmanuel Macron has come out saying he wants to piss them off by making life harder for them. There's been a lot of British sort of performative outrage at this. But polling last month found almost two-thirds of Brits supported tougher measures for unvaccinated people. Is Macron actually right? Well, in Italy, uh, I, I don't know that it is just that sentiment is beginning to shift against the voluntarily unvaccinated. It's 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 not been the case that throughout this, I was like, hooray, loads of people are rejecting the vaccine that's going to... <laughs> Uh, that's perfectly safe and is going to make life easier and healthier for absolutely everyone uh, collectively. So I, d- I don't know that my sentiments exactly shifted. I also, I, I'm interested in polling around this sort of thing a lot because, you know, if you looked at polling, you've got uh, very weirdly high percentages of the British population who would be in favour of having perpetual curfews or nightclubs constantly closed and what have you. And there seems to be there seems to be lots of I am in favour of any restriction as long as it does not apply to me, uh, even even amid those who um, are vaccinated and what have you. Certainly, I think that when we're talking about um, people who work in care homes, for example, like work with extraordinarily vulnerable people, I've got no objection to the employer effectively being like, look, if you want to continue this patient-facing role with extraordinarily uh, vulnerable people, then I'm sorry, but you're going to have to be vaccinated. Equally, uh, I'm I'm not uh, a proponent of being fully mandatory, as it were, and indeed the fact that uh, a government could take that sort of power, uh, even after all of the powers that have been exercised on our civil liberties over the course of the last two years, does sort of fill me with uh, some sense of worry. Uh, Mm. So while I accept that, you know, making life slightly more difficult and whatnot can be inappropriate, and sometimes it's just people need that final push, um, I I certainly uh, wouldn't want to go the whole hog and hold people down while putting something in their arms. Uh, meanwhile, over in Melbourne, world number one tennis player Novak Djokovic um, has won his appeal against being denied entry to play in the Australian Open, but may yet be deported by decree of the Home Secretary there. Near riot scenes unfolded outside his hotel. What do you make of this saga? Well, I I mean, I find this fascinating for many reasons. And also the thing appears to be moving sufficiently quickly that although what we're saying may be true at the time of recording, it's quite possible that by the time people are listening to this, the headline will be Novak Djokovic catapulted out of uh, Australia with actual trebuchet. Uh, (laughs) Novak Djokovic uh, elected president of Serbia. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, I think that the most striking thing uh, to me has been people talking about these uh, extraordinarily unacceptable conditions that uh, (laughs) Mr. Djokovic is being held in, while neglecting to focus on the fact that these are conditions which uh, many uh, immigrants and refugees and stuff who are trying to get to Australia are kept in as a matter of course. And it's the fact that it's now happening to very rich man, very famous man, or what have you, where, where you just go, like, sorry, no, this was, if, if it's unacceptable that it's happening to him, then it's unacceptable that it was happening to human beings, full stop. Uh, so hopefully this shines some light on quite how beastly Australia's immigration system is. Hopefully. Aisha, on that, a lot of prominent right-wingers have rallied behind Djokovic. 
complaining about the conditions of his detention. I know I feel lost without my personal chef. <laughs> and r- rending their garments about the unconstitutional level of discretion enjoyed by the Home Secretary in such matters. The same people vocally support tougher treatment of refugees in this country, the dismantling of the immigration appeal system, and complain about hotel room costs. I mean, is the Djokovic case actually any difference? Or is this just gigantic hypocrisy? Oh, I mean, this story is just incredible. Prisoner, sell, jock, each. Um, <laughs> what, what kind of calling? What did I hear him being referred to? He's, um, he's the Serbian Nelson Mandela. <laughs> you know, the long walk to a luxury hotel. I mean, come on. It Listen, is absolutely- we all remember when we were where we were when we found out that Nelson Mandela didn't have access to his own tennis courts. And, 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 I mean, it, that was a very powerful moment. That was a profound moment in the struggle. And wh- what I love is that Nigel Farage is basically Winnie to, um, to, to, to Novak's now. And I just, I, I, the people coming out to support, I just feel like I can't I'm wait. Sorry, I just actually processed what you said. <laughs> Nigel Farage is Winnie to Novak's. <laughs> <laughs> to Novak Nelson. Oh, okay, sorry. Go on. I mean, it is. I what I can't wait is for the sort of the concert. The sort of you know, there, there'll be some fundraiser. Do you remember Live Aid? There'll be something like this with with you know, Nicki Minaj, Right Said Fred, Piers Corbin, all the greats rallying mm. around Novak. Also, I think his name is Novak. Now that is actually in my head. Like that is his actual <laughs> name. Um, I, I, I want you to get some T-shirts printed, Novak, you know, free Novak Djokovic. <laughs> <laughs> je, suis, je suis Novak's. Um, <laughs> Roy, Steve James, an NHS anesthesiologist, became an instant anti-vax pin-up by confronting Health Secretary Sajid Javid on mandatory vaccination of NHS staff. Where do you stand on the subject? Does, does he have a point or is it incumbent on the NHS as a caregiver to ensure it does everything within its power to minimise any risk to the patients in its aegis? Yes, I think it does. I, I mean, first of all, he's in breach of his GMC regu- requirements where um, Section 28, I think, if I can remember it properly, um, uh, that uh, docs are obliged to do whatever they can to make sure they cause no harm to their patients and they should take all reasonable steps to make sure that they've had immunizations and vaccinations that are appropriate for their work. Um, and anyway, he will have been vaccinated. He will have had uh, hepatitis B because you can't mm. be can't work as a surgeon or a, a consultant if you if you don't. No, I think it was extremely unfortunate. I know the hospital very well and the people that run it. It's a great hospital. The last thing they wanted was somebody to pull a stunt like that. Frankly, I'd have uh, I'd have moved, I'd have said, well, I'm not going to give you the sack, but if you don't if you don't get vaccinated, I'm going to find another job for you in the car park. I mean, it would it really makes me very cross. Um, the and the majority of people in I mean, there's there's a, there's a you know, there's still a story going around about the number of people we're going to lose um, who are not going to be vaccinated and who they may have a sincerely held view about vaccination. Well, that's fine, but I'm well. Look, I, I look about the old and the vulnerable. I'm old. I'm in my mid 70s I'm, I'm not specially vulnerable but I don't have the immune system that a younger person would have and I don't want to end up in a hospital where people around me haven't been vaccinated and there's a strong chance I'm going to pick something up from them so mm. no I just think I'm absolutely for it I think we should treat people respectfully and reasonably if they've got a good reason that they don't want to be vaccinated and I don't think we want to give everybody the sack
back because the NHS is a big organisation. There are things that you can do that are not patient-facing. But I thought that was a, a, a pretty cheap stunt. And it's since we've since discovered the guy runs a long COVID clinic um, privately oh. where he's charging uh, 250 quid a pop for that. So I, I think with the whole thing was a very sorry issue and it does him no service at all. Talking of sorry issues, I hear um, mm-hmm. your favourite, Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Love that has, guy. Has become a one man <laughs> advocate for the use of Viagra as a therapeutic for COVID <laughs> in, in, in what must be the strangest direction for the die hard franchise. Is there. <laughs> hard being the operative word. <laughs> Is there any logic to taking a Pfizer drug not indicated for a condition in order to avoid taking a Pfizer drug that is indicated for a condition? Or has this basically now become doing the opposite from what the experts say as a matter of ideology? Listen, Alex, we we all age in only one direction, okay? So I'm I'm gonna I'm only ever gonna become an older bloke. I'm gonna get more vulnerable to COVID. I've got so if this turns out to be uh, when is it that a two in one hit? Then uh, sign me up uh, for protect. Well, listen, I must uh, I must just tell you, Pfizer, who who make a Viagra. Yeah. Also, make a, a drug called Aricept, which is for the early onset of dementia. Uh, and they're combining Aricept with Viagra for a night you'll never forget. <laughs> <laughs> At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. In June 2020, a statue of 17th century slave trader Edward Colston was toppled and thrown into the Bristol Harbour during a Black Lives Matter protest. Four of the people involved were charged with criminal damage. Last week, all four were found not guilty by a jury. Cue a load of people who have no legal training and no single fecking clue even what offence they were being prosecuted for, how it is worded, which elements must be proved, what is the burden of proof, which are the lawful defences, what precedent may be relevant, what evidence the prosecution presented, or what the defence's legal arguments were, deciding that they know better than a jury that spent days, weeks, considering precisely all those points. Aisha why have some people been so angered by this outcome and on what basis? Because I think a lot of people felt that the jury were going to be Daily Mail readers and, you know, like lock them up. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people, particularly those on the right of the culture war, that's exactly what they were expecting to happen. I think the the outcome that they absolutely did not bank on 
was the, the one that, that we got. And, you know, I will even admit I was quite surprised by, by, by the outcome, very pleased by the outcome, but I was surprised by the outcome. And I just think it's so interesting because there are lots of parts of the law where a trial by jury gives very, very difficult um, results and the criminal justice mm. system gives, look at rape, you know, rape has practically become decriminalised in this country. You speak to any woman that has been through the court system um, as somebody who's been raped, it's absolutely horrendous. You do not see the government rushing to sort of scrap jury-led, um, you know, you know, jury-led sort of trials in these kinds of cases. But for this, it's all about the culture war. You know, it is the go-to lever particularly when things are going to get very, very difficult coming down the track. I mentioned the cost of living crisis earlier. That's going to be such a big problem for the government and for the country in, in the coming months. The culture war lever is there, and that's the one that the government will, will want to go to. The thing that I found interesting is that so many right-wing commentators were going, oh, this sets a very dangerous legal precedent. <laughs> no, most people are not going to go around you know, tearing down statues, but it should set a precedent, and the precedent it should set is for the state, the, the national state, local government, local prominent institutions to learn from this case and listen to local communities about these kinds of statues. I mean, I remember listening to a fascinating lecture by William Darwimple, who said, look, we should take a lot of these statues, including, by the way, in my opinion, Clive of India, who basically raped and pillaged India. He was known as the asset stripper of India, even at the time. He stands proudly outside the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office. You know, nobody likes walking. I mean, I never felt comfortable walking past him when I was in, in Westminster. Build a museum about our past and put all these statues in this museum so people can go and learn about everything that happened. That's what people want. People, we're busy people. We don't want to go around pulling down statues. You know, I can't even clear the gutters in my own home. <laughs> the idea I'm going to like get some rope and like pull down Clive of India, you know, I'm not even that strong. It's just, you know, it's, that is the precedent. Listen and learn from this case because the local community in Bristol wanted to get rid of this statue and all the local authorities and the state did not listen to them. That's the important point, isn't it? That's the important point. Yeah, I mean, it is. Tearing down the statue, chucking it in the harbour, it's a slam dunk. It's an offence, obviously, in law. But the, but the real aces hit the nail on the head. The local authority didn't listen. They've been fanning around for ages deciding what to do. They didn't know what to do. Lack of leadership, direction, commitment, and they've ended up with this. And good luck. I hear Attorney General Suella Braverman, another favourite of the show, um, mm. says, said she was contemplating the highly unusual move of referring the acquittal to the Court of Appeal because it was creating confusion. Are you confused about any aspect of this at all? I mean, I similarly am confused as to why it had taken decades of people uh, wanting this thing gone uh, before people finally sort of took matters. Got rid of it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and no, I mean, I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm not confused by the fact that this government in particular uh, wants to take these steps because it seems like all this government really has in its uh, sort of remaining arsenal is culture war, right? And uh, once you've had a situation where there seems to be no plan for so many of the 
urgent afflictions that are actually uh, occurring in this country, then it seems like the, the government's go-to policy is just pull the lever marked, let's have a culture war about X, Y, Z. X, yeah. I, I will point out that I remember that during the Brexit battle, senior judges were labelled enemies of the people, and now the Attorney General is referring to them a jury verdict. So uh, it seems that the people are now enemies of the people. Um, <laughs> I mean, listen, anyone listening to this who cannot fully appreciate the idea that the people are the enemies of the people hasn't experienced clinical depression in the way that I have. Uh, and, I, uh, and more power to your elbow if that's the case. But <laughs> Tough on people. Is that Karl Marx that said that? I, think, I, don't know. I love that. Uh, Tough on people, tough on the causes of people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Roy, Robert Jenrick tweeted that the rule of law is undermined if we accept vandalism and criminal damage are acceptable forms of political protest. Does he have a point? After all, this administration has built a solid reputation for respecting the rules. If you, let's go back to the poll tax. Are we all? Are we all is, is anybody listening uh, young enough, old enough to remember the poll tax? And do you remember yes, what happened? Yes, I in remember the, the poll London? tax. Yes, yeah, um, Scott, oh, this is this is we, lovely to feel young. <laughs> all right, I hear. No one likes to show off. No one likes to show off. Okay. All right. Well, for the children, there was a thing called the poll tax, and the public didn't like it, and they chiiked about it and smashed a lot of stuff up in London. And in the end, uh, the government had to pull back. Look. You do get to the point, don't you, where whatever the protest and whatever it is you're against and whatever you're, you you want to complain about, you do get to the point where if you think you're not being listened to and government is turning a deaf ear, that you end up thinking, well, what the hell else can I do but throw a brick through a window? Now, it doesn't make it right, and I'm not saying we should all go and throw bricks through the window, but I do understand it. I can understand the frustrations that people that people have. So, you know, this is not the first time a, a statue in, you know, in the harbour is, uh, you know, it's it's in a long line of people taking direct action and, and, and actually, you know, making their protest. It's like the people who glue their face to the pavement and things like that. If they, if they feel they're not being listened to, this is what people will do, and you can't be surprised. Hmm. Roy, back in the mists of time, I I think you used to be active in Conservative Party politics, um, but distance yourself uh, over uh, the I, years. I did, but that was before I changed my and, name and had plastic surgery. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, finally, the early days of the Cameron administration made you throw your hands up and say, you know, they, they were. A it was bunch John Major. Of, yes, a, John Major. <laughs> yeah. a, a bunch of incompetent yeah. drifters. I mean, since then, uh, do you now look at Boris Johnson and think, John Major come back, all is forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just, I mean, I, I, I was a councillor uh, and I was a councillor for 20 years, I think, and, and enjoyed it because, you know, living in a community and being part of how it's shaped and run and what have you, I thought it was a huge privilege and I enjoyed doing it. But then, you know, along comes uh, uh, John Major and he, I remember the speech he made where he put his hands again and said, don't bind my hands, you know, where he was pleading with his Brexit backbenchers not to screw him up again. And and we all know what happened there. And now I, you know, I look at what's happened now with, with Johnson. I mean, he is, 
he's a showman. He's a figure of fun. He's not a leader. Uh, and at a time when the nation needs a serious leader, someone who we can have confidence in, we've got someone who thinks doing another tour around a vaccination centre is, is a sign of leadership. It's not. It's just a damn nuisance when he turns up because it's all the security. You know, he's a bloody palaver. Everybody in the NHS wishes he wouldn't visit hospitals because he's a damn <laughs> nuisance. And then you get he won't wear a mask and all that. No, look, he's totally unsuited to the job. It's hard to think of a time where he would be suitable, but certainly not. He's not suited now. And I, and and I, the people. I mean, I still have you know friends and connections with the Conservative Party, and they all are aghast. They they, they all say, "How did it happen? How did we end up with this guy?" Uh, and and but of course you know what do we do next uh, who's who's next i think my guess is he will they'll they'll make a move to get rid of him probably in the summer i should think aisha finally uh, respected jurisprudence expert darren grimes um has suggested this means people can now pull down karl marx's gravestone is mixing liquor with antihistamines always wrong <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the kind of political titan of our, of our time. I just have to say, when I hear the word jurisprudence, it does make me laugh because I was a law student back in the day and I was a very bad law student. In fact, I was <laughs> such a bad law student that I thought jurisprudence was a case about a woman called Judith Prudence. <laughs> That is bad. So I'm saying nothing about Darren Grimes's uh, like intellectual capacity at this stage. The stupid thing about that is, I think Karl Marx's grave was attacked like quite some time ago, <laughs> probably by Darren Grimes <laughs> on a big night out. I mean, who knows? Twas the season to be jolly, now tis the season to self-flagellate. We know most years end in some kind of crushing disappointment, might as well start as we mean to go on. And nothing sets one up for disappointment like promising to change one's behaviours in a sudden and entirely unsustainable way. Roy, what are the motives for giving something up or trying to be healthier, specifically at the beginning of the year? Why do we put so much emphasis on that arbitrary point in time? I think it's because we all pile on the pounds over Christmas, don't we? You all eat too much and we all drink too much and you think, oh God, and now I've got to sort of sort myself out. And that's why people go on these uh, extraordinary, you know, pineapple diets and peculiar things like that. Uh, and, you know, they, I think the, I think I read somewhere the other day that the average diet lasts three weeks and people give up at the end of three weeks. Not that long. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's a big thing for, big thing I, for some people. I think yeah. the pineapple diet, by the way, went out with a poll tax. I have to tell I you. Think I think there's too much sugar in pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, but I mean, yeah, that's. I think that's why we do it, and and, and it's the season to have um, uh, these res- resolutions. And I mean, my resolution is always never to make a resolution because I've never ever been able to keep a resolution. So I don't know. I'm the wrong one to ask, I suppose. But I, I, I do. We do find in the NHS that, for example, smoking cessation clinics. We get a lot more people coming to smoking cessation clinics at the beginning of the new year. People want to give up smoking, mm. and and so I mean that 
that's that's a good thing because um, supported cessation generally works. But um, so yeah, people do it, and um, long way they do it because the smoking cessation clinics will run out of customers if they don't. <laughs> uh, I hear January is measurably the most depressing month of the year. If you're mm-hmm. if you're north of the equator, that is, I'm sure it's in, an incredibly jolly time if you're in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> It contains the most depressing day of the year, which is Blue Monday. That's the third Monday in January. Why do we try try to make life harder during an already very hard month? Well, I think it's uh, dependent on what it is that you're trying to give up, uh, maybe. Because like Roy was saying about uh, smoking cessation and people trying to do that, in the new year. Uh, This wasn't quite a New Year's resolution because we started in mid-December, but I, since my teens, was a heavy smoker and then have been on a vape for a while, but stopped doing that in mid-December and my girlfriend gave up cigarettes. uh, And so we're doing well thus far. But I think that that's one that's weirdly easier in January because you're, you know, particularly if you're using uh, still smoking cigarettes, then it's not a month where you want to go outside uh, and that sort of thing. So maybe, maybe for some things it can be easier. And if you're uh, wanting to wanting to give up cigarettes, then give that a good old go because I know that they're absolutely delicious, and every atom of my being wants one. But I simply mustn't. I mean, come November, we all grow a moustache. Um, Aisha's one last year was epic. <laughs> Listen, I, I, my friend, as an Asian perimenopausal woman, I could I could outdo you in terms of the facial hair right now. Listen, listen, babe, I am from Greece. I have aunts <laughs> who would laugh at a hair's moustache. Um, <laughs> I know, I can look like Tom Selleck if I don't keep a grip on it, you know. So surely, would it not be a better thing to give up alcohol in November in anticipation of all the excess and then grow a moustache in January when we all look like shite anyway. <laughs> there is something about support, though, isn't it, about giving up? There's a, quite a lot of psychology about why you know, people making resolutions, giving things up and sticking to them. And if you, uh, if you say, okay, I'm not going to drink because of a cause, it's easier than to say I'm just not going to drink. So if you say, oh, I've given up drinking, you do it in the middle of August, people think, well, why? But if you say, well, I've got a New Year's resolution <laughs> and I've given up drink, this may be, okay, fine. You know, it, so there's that kind hmm. of, there is that kind of tinge of support thing going on, isn't there? Not to uh, uh, piss on your chips, Roy, but yeah. last year, according to Alcohol Concern, 17,000 Britons managed to stop drinking for a month as part of dry January, um, which is not a huge number. So we all start with good intentions. I, I guess my point is that by failing at something, we create quite a lot of negativity that pushes us back to bad habits. I seriously doubt that statistic because I'm pretty sure that there are more than 17,000 Muslims in the UK. So it's uh, there, there are heaps <laughs> more people they weren't, than that. Sto- they weren't stopping drinking because they were doing dry January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just dry every month. <laughs> um, Veganuary began in 2014, believe it or not, and participation has more than doubled each year since then. 400,000 people took part in 2020, which is the last year I have stats for. Aisha, your food tastes run to the more ecumenical, let's say. You have described yourself as a human dustbin. <laughs> have, you, 
Have you tried Veganuary? Yes, um, my body is a temple. It's more like the dome of a mosque, right? <laughs> open, now. open to anything, day or night. There's no, honestly, I, I just hate New Year's resolutions so much. And all the, I can't even pronounce veganuary. Also, I grew up in Glasgow. People didn't even believe in people who are vegetarian. I had this lovely friend called Eva, who was a vegetarian. She was a beautiful girl, like absolutely stunning. She's like Tandy Newton. And everyone's house you go to, their mum and dad would be like, oh my God, you're a vegetarian. Do you want some wafer thin ham? Like, have some ham. It's just very thin. Like, that wasn't meat kind of thing. Do you know like, the thinner it was, it wasn't a meat-based product. I mean, even Can in I my household, say- a bunch of Muslims in my mum was, have some wafer thin ham, Eva. Have some ham. It was just like, you know, just like ridiculous. So I just, I thought this year what I was going to do is do that counterintuitive thing. Because, you know, if you deny yourself something, it becomes, you know, ever more seductive. So I thought this year, my sort of like resolution would be to eat loads of toast and butter. And it turns out that has not worked because I'm just eating a lot of toast and butter. <laughs> as well as everything else. As well as lots of wafer thin ham. It's like the very old joke about eating a salad. And it's like, do you eat it before a meal or after? <laughs> it's a bit like when someone was trying to explain the sort of um the, the fast 800 but i was like is this how fast you can consume 800 calories like in one sitting it's like no that is can not i just say calories. entirely unfairly uh because he can't really butt in and defend himself that our producer andrew during the the meeting for the script, he kept calling it Vajenuary, which is which is an entirely different month. <laughs> that celebrates Vajazzle Day. Listen, we've gone full circle because Jokovic is a vegan, isn't he? Yeah, we have. Roy, um, dry January has actually been linked to drinking less in the long term. So these things do work. Are we unfairly cynical about resolutions? Has it become fashionable to frown on uh, on people giving up things? It, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it, it is hard for people to give up. It's like smoking. I mean, um, it, people say, oh, you cost the earth and the NHS is full of people with breathing problems and give it up and rest of it. But, you know, you've got to accept the fact that, that smoking is a dependency on nicotine It's a, and it's an addiction and it's hard to do. And alcohol dependency is much more common than we all think, particularly against in the middle classes. And I think, look, it, 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 I think it's, if someone wants to give something up, I think, it, it, and we can support them to do it, it you know, for, by a charity or you know, everybody's doing it in November or whatever it is they're doing. I think it's a good thing, and 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 if we can, we should. But I do, I do find it interesting that I think the nation's diet has sort of shifted. I just give you an example. I mean, I actually eat gluten free, um, and you know, I've been doing that for a long time. And it used to be quite difficult to be gluten free. Now, mm. wherever you go, all the supermarkets are full of fantastic stuff that's gluten free. Um, so. I think there's been a shift in public perceptions about diet. Roy Lilly there, ahead of the curve. <laughs> With a bedazzle. With a bedazzle.
And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books and miscellaneous activities that have transported our panelists away from the traumatizing world of politics? Aisha, let's start with you. Well, I was lucky enough to get a preview of a new film that's just come out called Boiling Point, which stars Stephen Graham. And it's an absolutely brilliant film. It's very much of its time because it gives you a kind of um, backroom glimpse into what life is like in a restaurant, the, the pressure on the staff, the, the waiting staff, the front of house staff, and of course, the people in the kitchen. And it's incredibly shot. It's all done in one take. The whole mm. thing is just done with one camera on one take. It is absolutely stunning, but it's very stressful to watch. But it is brilliant. Stephen Graham is sensational in it, as he always is. So that's highly recommended boiling point. Mm. I hear. How about you? I, for the next uh, week, will experience the sheer unadulterated thrill of the Master's Snooker uh, being on. Uh, and for those of you who aren't uh, don't, don't know snooker or aren't uh, into it, you'll surprise yourself. It's one of those things that's extraordinarily soothing to just have on in the background. It's like having a gentle fire or something, mm. uh, right? And uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend uh, highly enough. Whenever you need to just like take a minute out, like you're thinking too much about other things, just watch some like nice, soothing, defensive snooker. I love it. I love it. It was one of those things that it took me 20 years to get. I thought, why are people watching this? And and then once I got it, it just became uh, uh, something that I really look forward to. So I'll second that. How about you, Roy? Uh, I, I watched um, the Netflix top movie. Don't is it? Don't look up. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, it's complete rubbish. Don't waste your time. Um, <gasps> it, <laughs> it's just awful. Um, I loved it. What are you right, talking about? The, the critics slated it. Uh, social media loved it. I watched it and thought, really, you're having a laugh? No, I thought it's just you know, no. And when there they you end go. Up in, the, in the end, on the planet, and then I, I you know, I won't, I'd best not give it away, but yes. uh, don't waste your time. Um, the, but the other thing I have, I've rediscovered, I've rediscovered the Financial Times at the weekend. It is a fantastic read. The FT, it comes with a couple of magazines, a whole load of stuff, and it lasts me all week. It, it, it's a proper paper, and you can sit and hold it and read it and look at it and fold it up, and, you know, it's all that thing about reading. So I've rediscovered the FT at weekends and, and thoroughly recommend it. Oh, what a good recommendation. It actually makes me want to hold the paper. Um, if anyone is interested, I've been deep diving into Netflix hacks, so these are not hacks to allow you to watch Netflix for free, by the way. These are um, features that are in your Netflix account, but very, very few people use or know how to use. So if you go into your preferences, you can change everything from the subtitles, appearance, size, font, color. You can remove things from your history to get rid of those very annoying um, films that you watch 10 minutes of 
decided were rubbish. And since then, Netflix have been saying, would you like to continue watching X? <laughs> you can you can recap episodes at faster speeds. So if there's a new season of something coming up, you can literally watch the last season at double speed just to catch up with it. There's even a Chrome extension that allows you to learn a foreign language while watching a Netflix show by giving you the text of the original language and the English underneath it. it and best of all, there's a website called What's on Netflix that has what it calls the Netflix Bible, which gives you a complete list of all the categories of things. And there are over 2,000 of them. So you can get things as specific as dystopian sci-fi or creature features or 80s tearjerkers. And it gives you a numerical suffix that you can put at the end of your Netflix.com page or whatever um, it, it is when you have your account. And it will give you recommendations within that very narrow specific genre and you discover loads of stuff that the normal algorithm would never think to offer to you because they're very niche and you haven't watched any before so it thinks you're not interested in them uh, generally so that's my that's my hack Alex, I think that that's a very good recommendation. And I was very worried that when I led with the UK snooker masters, I was going to have the most centrist dad recommendation on this podcast. And then Roy immediately went with don't watch the Leonardo DiCaprio film read the FT weekend. And I was like, saved. I've been saved. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I think you still have it. Um, <laughs> and that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much. To Ahir Shah. Thank you. And to our special guest, Roy Lilly. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And don't forget, a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday. This week, we talked to the writer of the brilliant ITV drama about Hillsborough, Anne, and we have guest Omid Jalili. Remember, if you like this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right here in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise, and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers get a shout-out at the end of the podcast, and here are some now. Hello, and thanks from me to Dalman, Howard Scully, and Rusty Halbert. And best wishes from me to Max, Aaron Walker, and John Skilbeck. And many thanks and Happy New Year from me to Rich H, Anne Cheng, and Rona McPherson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Alexandre, with Aisha Hazarika and Ahir Shah. The producers were Andrew Harrison, Jacob Archbold, and Yelna Sofronievich. With audio production by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.